Good morning, Crossbridge. <laughs> That's awesome. I get much more of a feedback already. Uh, my name is Brett Anderson. I'm a CB youth leader and an elder here at Crossbridge, like Jimmy was talking about. And I have the privilege of preaching to you this morning. And I really do consider it a privilege. If you're a guest with us today, I'm glad that you're here. Our hope for you is the same as it is for everyone else here at Crossbridge, that you would take one step closer to Jesus because that's honestly what we're all about. As some of you know, I'm a teacher at a private school having completed my fifth year of teaching there. I professionally disagree with homework, so uh, some of you can rest a little bit easier. <laughs> I will not be assigning any. Um, I am excited to see how some of my skills as a teacher um, that I've developed in the past six and a half years translate into preaching. Um, if you need to use the bathroom, please don't raise your hand. Um, yes, gotta laugh. Okay. <laughs> I've learned in the past 10 plus years of this journey of becoming and being a teacher um, that teaching really does bring me a lot of joy. Um, that's not something, that's not a platitude that I just say is I have discovered what God has gifted me with. Uh, more specifically, when learning happens, teaching brings me great joy. Everything is worth it when you see a kid go from being dominated by a concept or a learning objective into uh, no longer being dominated by it, but, but actually just being demonstrating mastery of it. Uh, that brings a great amount of joy watching that light bulb go off in a kid's head. Now, despite this, I have decided to step away from teaching in the classroom. Um, six days ago, I turned in my, my, class, my classroom key, um, and that has been emotional, <laughs> to say the absolute least, saying goodbye to a room where I had both cried and laughed. Um, it, it was a lot. But halfway through my third year at school, I was ready to leave. I prayed, I sought advice, and I even asked others to pray for and with me. I started looking at other schools. Um, I even applied to the FBI. But at the end of the year, I felt a subtle prompting from the Holy Spirit to stay one more year. That happened twice. That happened twice. I applied twice to the FBI, by the way. And I think it, was going, it goes without saying that everybody knows just how frustrating the past two years have been, especially for teachers. To say I was feeling impatient was a complete understatement. Uh, for the teachers at Crossbridge who are about to step back into those trenches, uh, I see you. God sees you. Um, as a society, we are super impatient. We are rushing to get somewhere so we can wait. It consumes us. If you're listening to me say this and you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm that impatient, um, let me present two situations to you and just check where you're at. How would you feel if I told you that you could only drive in the right lane of the highway or the turnpike, regardless of how slow the person in front of you is going? You just have to sit there. <laughs> or what if I asked you to go to the longest checkout line at Acme or ShopRite, regardless of how many things you have? even if you just started cooking tacos and now you need to run to the store to get tortillas. I can, <laughs> neither of these two things apply to me, by the way. Uh, but I can see it in your face. Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> I, think it, uh, I think this is because we all have grown accustomed to a level of impatience because we're always in a rush. And I wonder how this culture of rushing and attitude of impatience bleeds into our relationship with God. Oops, lost where I was at and our ability to wait on him, our spirituality. If I don't see God answer like I expect him to, did, did he really answer? I think a lot of us ask ourselves that question, whether we realize it or not. If you've ever felt this, you're not alone. It's been an issue for thousands of years, and as we continue in our Story of Moses series, I'd love to look at how the Israelites continue to struggle with this frequently. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to open up to the book of Exodus chapter 40, um, also known as the book of Names. 
Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 34 to 38. We're all the way at the end of the book, but not the end of the story. As you're turning, let me just remind you quickly about what's happened leading into these verses. Israel has been in the desert for a while with the promise of a new land that's way better than Egypt and definitely better than the desert. They are concerned with getting to their new home so much so that they've started to pull their eyes from God towards themselves. And the whole golden cow thing. Moses and Joshua go up onto a mountain and it's just, it's taken too long for the Israelites and so they decide to just build a giant shiny cow. Um, something visible, okay? So they're all camped out in the desert. Let's pick it up in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tents of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day that it did lift. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels. Okay, so I know this is a short passage. Believe me, I, <laughs> I know. But there's a ton that's in here. And I'm sure you have a few questions just like I did when I was studying this. Let's tackle those because it'll help us understand how God meets Moses and the Israelites in this impatience. First off, why in the world would Pastor Jimmy and Pastor Will give me this verse? Uh, believe me, <laughs> that's a great question. I ask myself that frequently. Um, thanks, guys. <laughs> But what did this cloud look like? And at night, when it was filled with fire, this one, I don't know how to explain this. I, I don't know what it would have looked like, but I know that one key aspect of the, the cloud over the tabernacle and then the fire in the cloud at night was that it was visible. Okay, remember that. It's going to come up later. And also, what the heck is a tabernacle? <laughs> this one's easier. It's, it's a big tent. <laughs> it's the first mention of this that we see in the Bible because it was different from anything any other nation would have or it was so different from anything that the Israelites themselves would have had in their history. It's the first occurrence. The tabernacle was more than just a tent, though, or an ancient BC portable church. It would have stood out amongst all the other aspects of what is essentially the entire Hebrew nation. It would have been something that people noticed. Um, the Israelites are so concerned with getting to their new home that they've constantly pulled their eyes from him. Um, oops, skip a part. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, they constantly pulled their eyes from him. Attention to detail was unreal. And like I said, nothing like it in their nation or those around them had existed to this point. Um, almost calling it a tent is almost like a, a short sell. Um, it was so much more than that. Um, the, surrounding the why of this tabernacle, it helped to bring their attention to what mattered most. It was located in the center of camp. Everything else was built around it. Um, every morning, you would wake up in your tent, in your lean-to, in your shelter, and the door to your shelter was facing the tabernacle. It was at the center of the Hebrews' lives, literally and both spiritually. And just in case you missed the location or needed to orient yourself, literal smoke and fire was coming from it day and night. Like, it was one of those things that's just hard to miss. Um, it was a reminder all the time that God is with you constantly, not just in one thing, but in everything, in between everything. Details about the tabernacle grab my attention more than you'd probably expect. My hobby and my pastime is miniature painting. You can go ahead and put the picture up on the screen. My, my hobby and uh, pastime is miniature painting. Um, I, I've been doing it since I was in sixth grade, like over 13 years. 
Um, this is not the smallest miniature I've ever painted, and it is, by, it is far from the best. It's a nice middle ground. And to give you a little bit of scale, <laughs> that's the miniature on the screen, okay? Um, details matter, and I love getting lost in those details. I love getting immersed in those details. Uh, I, I enjoy the challenge of painting something with a ludicrous amount of detail just to see how, how cool I can make it. It's, it's, it's fun for me. When we read in chapter 40 about how the Lord filled the tabernacle and was visibly seen by smoke and fire, it wasn't just the fire and the smoke that was inspiring. It was the whole enclosure. So real quick, flip to Exodus chapter 36. We're going to see some details. I would encourage you, if you're more of a tactile visual learner, uh, close your eyes and listen and try to visualize what is going on with these details. I invite you to do that. They made the curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the cherubim, with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. They made four posts of acacia wood for it and overlaid them with gold. They made gold hooks for them and cast their four silver bases. For the entrance to the tent, they made a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer. And they made five posts with hooks for them. They overlaid the tops of the posts and their bands with gold, and made their five bases of bronze. Okay, so to give you some modern perspective, and if you were closing your eyes, you can open them. <laughs> to give you some more modern perspective, we're talking about roughly $56 million worth of gold and about $2 million worth of silver, and that's those calculations don't even include all the other precious materials that would have been intricately designed into this tabernacle. Uh, this, this was peak glamping. Um, like, when's the last time you had a tent worth $58 million? One of the cool parts of this description of the tabernacle for me is the redemption of craftsmanship that we see God display here. And let that sink in, the redemption of craftsmanship. The Israelites go from slaves making mud bricks to adorning what becomes the dwelling place of God. They are no longer working for slave drivers, but they are creating art worthy of the presence of God. Just making this was a feat in and of itself, and it was completely portable. After they were done making it look good, imagine the tear down when service was done. Uh, set up and tear down teams, God sees you. Imagine putting all this together. Talk about testing your patience, right? Remember, these aren't the most patient people, just like Pastor Will talked about last week. Remember how 40 days was too much? But I want to remind us of something that Will covered last week. 40 days was too much for the Israelites, and so they melted down the finery of Egypt, sent them away into a... And, <laughs> sorry, they melted down the finery of Egypt and formed it into a giant shiny cow. Um, these resources instead are now being spent honoring God rather than replacing them, replacing him. Just look at the symbolism there. Israelites are starting to take their eyes off of themselves and turn towards God. Not just their craftsmanship, but the Israelites' resource management is being redeemed as well. We see the Israelite people undergo a change across the entire story of Exodus. And we get to see it highlighted in these last five verses. So jump back with me to Exodus chapter 40. I know we're flipping a lot. We're going to keep doing it. Uh, <laughs> jump back with me to Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites... Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day that it lifted. 
So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. We saw the Israelites plead with God to deliver them from Egypt for about 400 years. Now God is visibly present, uh, present with them. The Israelites were impatient and built a false God to attribute their deliverance to. They couldn't wait for God and Moses uh, for 40 days on the mountain. Instead of, instead of God just telling them to get their act together, again, he did something so much more loving and personal. He came down the mountain to live and dwell among them in the desert. Now the Israelites are decorating and keeping the dwelling place of God. Like, check this out. Through the small chunk of Exodus chapter 40, that felt that Pastor Jimmy and Pastor Will dumped on me, we see something so beautiful. We see God creating a rhythm for the Israelites where God is at the center instead of themselves. He's not on the mountain for Moses. He's in the tabernacle with them. And he's given them roles in the tabernacle to remind them to keep their eyes on him. It's almost like God is helping them shift their attention from the promised land to the God who promised it. And they'll need to wait on his direction to get there so that their impatience can be replaced with waiting on God. Just look at verse 36 and 37. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day that it lifted. The Israelites are now waiting on God to move. Imagine how many times uh, the Israelite kids would go bother their parents. Mom and dad, are we moving today? And them having to say, we'll see what God wants to do. Um, we could be waiting today, or maybe, maybe we'll move. I, I don't know. Um, I, <laughs> I would imagine that fills some of you with dread. There is no defined time of when the smoke or the fire would move, just when God wanted. Nothing more than today we wait, or today we follow. Sounds worse than only being able to drive in the right lane. Like, at least you're moving. I believe that when we let the cultural norm of impatience trickle into our relationship with God, we become exactly like the Israelites that we've been seeing in the past couple weeks. So how does impatience impact our spiritual life? Well, there's lots of ways, but I'll give you two of the biggest symptoms of impatient spirituality. Symptom number one, we expect God to be on our schedule. God, I'm giving you 75 to 85 minutes to meet with me on Sunday, but you better hurry because I've got plans afterwards. I'll give you five to 10 minutes in the morning to speak. If not, I have places to be. The second symptom, that the destination is greater than the formation. Uh, we make the destination more important than the process of, of formation getting there. We hate the in-between times. We plead with God to remove us from uncomfortable situations. We want to be experts without going through training, and we feel like we should be a master without, a, without ever once being an apprentice. We think we know more about our own lives and how they should go than God does. Can you see how a culture of rushing and an attitude of impatience can bleed into our relationship with God and our ability to wait on him? It can happen to any of us so quickly. Israel felt this, right? So God restructured their life to daily wait on him. God went from the mountain into the center of the camp, into a tabernacle, a home that was holy and set apart. You might be thinking, maybe life would be easier for us if God did this again, if he gave us another tabernacle. And um, he did. And the Sunday school answer is the right one. Thousands of years ago, or th thousands of years after this moment, 
because of God's deep love for his creation and his desire to be in a relationship with them, he came to earth as a human to demonstrate this love. He didn't need a fancy tent to set up or tear down. The person of Jesus had two feet and as a human tabernacle, he brought God with him wherever he went. He never, he never was in a rush and was always pointing people towards the love of God, like the Hebrew tents would have been pointed towards the tabernacle. Even though the culture around Jesus was similar to ours and how impatient it was, Jesus never let it affect his spiritual life and his time with God. He knew how to wait on God and didn't expect his father to be on his schedule. Jesus never rushed formation to reach a destination. Instead, he saw each person around him and invited them into a relationship with God. When, when we can learn to live like Jesus by waiting on God's move, it'll impact our spirituality, or sorry, our spiritual lives in a number of ways. First, it creates room to build faith and to trust in God. Second, it reminds us that this life isn't about us. God should be camped at the center. He should be at the center of our lives. And lastly, third, it prepares us to be ready to respond to God in the moment. Is the fire staying or is the fire going? This is easier to say than to live. I totally get that. When I was teaching, I wanted to be done. I wanted to be at my destination according to my time. There are things God is calling us to wait on, like with my situation at school. Teaching had become less fulfilling. I felt dread and frustration more than joy and contentment. I felt shame that I might have spent longer earning my degree than using it. But with each year, I can point to at least one kid that needed me to be there. I was part of a team that gave many children a refuge from virtual learning. God's presence had not left my tabernacle. God hadn't moved on, but I wanted to. But he didn't, so I stayed. I asked for tons of prayer for patience, by the way. Please don't think I just kind of like shrugged my shoulders and said, guess we're waiting today, and uh, sat there super content because <laughs> it didn't happen. I was being formed and it was tough. It easily would have been much more comfortable to just run, but I wouldn't have learned. And please hear me. I would have wasted the frustration. I would have wasted the formation. Where has God called you to wait? In a relationship? A job change? Or a job you currently have? A living situation? Maybe a school you're going to? Where has God called you to wait? I'm not saying it's easy. Waiting in something can be one of the hardest things you do in life, especially when you can't see the end of the waiting. It's not just about staying tough, or sorry, it's not just about staying though, because I believe some of us would rather stay camped out because at least that feels like a destination. At least it feels like we've gone somewhere. You can dress it up as resolution and resign to, well, this is just how it is now. God has moved and invited you to follow, but you're immobilized by the fear of the unknown and where God might be going. When the presence of God moved from the tabernacle, it wasn't like Waze or Google Maps, where the destination's clear, the travel time is calculated to the minute, and they might even show you a couple speed traps along the way. Um, the idea of not having a clear destination and stepping out in faith scares the living daylights out of some of us. There are things God is calling us to move on from or to move towards. I am moving on from education, at least temporarily. God may ask me to move back and maybe wander in it for 40 years, and I need to remember that that is not a backward step. 
I have the opportunity to still use the heart God gave me for teaching in CBUs. And I encourage you, come be a youth leader with me. There's plenty of room. But I have felt a peace within the transition that I did not feel in the previous two years. I can't promise a pillar of fire leading you, but when you keep God at the center of, our, of your lives or our lives, that calling to wait or follow becomes much more clear. No fire or smoke. We have the presence of God in us. The Holy Spirit uh, brings wisdom, discernment, and guidance through prayer, the word, and other believers. But the question we need to ask each morning looks the same as the Israelites thousands of years ago. What does God want to do today? There's no rush. Today we wait, or today we follow. Regardless, we patiently trust on God. And before Pastor Jimmy comes up to lead us in communion, I want to leave you with one last question. How different would our neighborhoods look if we injected a patient spirituality into our impatient culture? Will you pray with me? God, thank you for today. God, thank you for the opportunity. Um, God, I pray that we would be drawn to put you at the center of our lives. God, that we would be willing to decorate your, your house, God. Um, but God, give us the courage to be able to point towards you in situations where it feels like that's impossible. In your most holy and abundant name, God. Amen.